Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Massimo Filiucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Galef. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Massimo, we have a special guest with us today. Here in the studio with us is Joshua Nob, who is an assistant professor at Yale University in both cognitive science and philosophy. He is a pioneer of the young but fast-growing subfield of philosophy called experimental philosophy, or uh, I like its nickname, XFI for short. Joshua, welcome. Thanks. Uh, so I was going to try to sum up the uh, the mandate of experimental philosophy, but then I realized that's that's silly when we have an expert uh, in the field right here in the studio with us. So do, do you want to give us some background on what the field is and, and what its purpose is? Well, experimental philosophy is sort of a new movement within philosophy that has philosophers sort of leaving their armchairs to go out and actually do experimental studies. So in that way, experimental philosophy is kind of reconnecting with an older tradition within philosophy, where philosophy was supposed to be concerned with questions about human nature, about how human beings actually think and feel. Right, so, so a lot of those questions in philosophy sort of got branched off into the sciences, right? Mm-hmm. So, so is that the kind of return that you're talking about, returning to its scientific roots? Right, exactly. So there used to be this sense of what a philosopher was, that a philosopher was supposed to be someone who just thought in a deep and broad way about how things in general sort of hang together. And then there became a sense maybe at certain times that philosophy should be understood as a highly specific academic discipline where philosophers could ignore questions about history, about literature or poetry or the sciences. And maybe experimental philosophy is trying to recapture the sort of roots of this philosophical enterprise where it's not sort of this academic discipline siphoned off away from everything else, but but more kind of connected with this broader intellectual discourse. But wait a minute. I just spent um, a a career in science and left it so that I could do armchair speculation. Are you telling me (laughs) that I made the wrong move? (laughs) Wait, but I think there's maybe a slight difference between what I'm seeing and the thing that you're worried about. So it's not that uh, experimental philosophy is a movement rejecting the idea of doing anything else other than this kind of work. It's more rejecting the rejection of that sort of work. That is to say, saying that among other things that philosophers could do, one thing that would be valuable is to not sit, just stay in your armchair, but get out and get off, off with those test tubes. Right. So let's talk about an example. So, so um, can you give us an uh, um, example or two of the kind of research that uh, experimental philosophers are interested in doing? So one kind of question that I've been really interested in is the role of people's moral judgments in their thinking as a whole. So one thing you might think about moral judgment is that it's somehow just the final step in some sort of process. So that first we understand basically how a certain situation works, and then once we've basically understood it, then we make a moral judgment about it. But in a series of experiments, I've tried to show that actually people's moral judgments can kind of infuse their whole way of understanding the situations in which they are embedded. 
So uh, this, um, there's, there's been a lot of interest recently in what some people refer to um, as, as neurophilosophy or, or neuroethics, right? So there's a lot of people who are actually doing um, uh, investigations in how the brain comes up with uh, moral judgment. Now, what would you say, however, to somebody who, who, who might make the suggestion that, well, that's interesting, uh, you know, neurobiology. Uh, it's certainly interesting to know how something as important as moral judgment um, is, is done by the human brain. But in what sense is that going to inform philosophical questions about ethics? Oh, right. So there are various sort of different levels that we could think of a question, a scientific question taking place at. So one kind of question that we might wonder about is sort of if people are trying to understand each other's minds, how exactly is that realized neuroanatomically? So to what degree is it subserved by the medial prefrontal cortex versus the temporal parietal junction? To the extent that you're wondering about that kind of question, you're not really wondering about a philosophical question. But you might also think that this scientific inquiry will shed light on these deeper questions, like something like, fundamentally, what is it that we're even trying to do when we're engaged in the understanding of other people's minds? Are we engaged in something kind of like a scientific investigation? Is our ordinary way of understanding people's minds somehow fundamentally or deeply different from science? Maybe insofar as we're dealing with those kind of questions, we're not just wondering about a scientific question, but at the same time about something more philosophical. Okay, let's let's take another a more concrete example, uh, Joshua. One of my favorite bits, um, aspects of your your research portfolio is the the work that you've done, uh, in which you found that when asking people whether a certain action was was morally blameworthy, whether someone was to blame for their for the consequences of their action, it depends a lot on how the question is framed, um, and that people have this feeling that someone, if if the world is deterministic. Um, then someone can't really be held responsible for what they do. Um, and yet, and they'll say that, and yet when you give them a specific example, they'll still hold the person in question morally accountable for their actions. Um, so I was hoping you could talk about that and then maybe talk about how that relates back to moral philosophy in its traditional sense. Oh, this is a really nice ex- example maybe of what kind of things experimental philosophers do. So there's a kind of traditional question within philosophy, and the question is, if everything is completely determined, can we still be morally responsible for the things that we do? And some people say, yes, even if everything was completely determined, we could still be morally responsible. While others say, no, if everything is determined, then by that fact, we can't be morally responsible. And what we were thinking is that maybe these two different kinds of views that people have are sort of coming out of two different aspects of our minds, two different ways of thinking about the problem. Mm -hmm. So we thought in particular, maybe to the extent that we think about things in an abstract theoretical way, we end up with the idea that you can't be morally responsible if everything is determined. But to the extent that we think about things in a more emotional, concrete way, then we do end up thinking that. So to address, address this, we ran a study in which all subjects were given a story about this universe, universe A, in which everything is just completely determined. But then there were two conditions. In one condition, the abstract condition, participants were just asked, if uh, someone is in universe A, can they ever be morally responsible for anything they do? Mm-hmm. And then people just said, absolutely not. Over 90% of subjects said, mm-hmm. you cannot be morally responsible. Then in the other condition, we asked in a slightly different way. We said, consider this one guy in universe A. His name is Bill. And Bill falls in love with his secretary, so he decides to leave his wife and family. So he sets up an incendiary device in the basement to burn them all to death. <laughs> so now his family is completely killed. Is Bill morally responsible for what he did? And there, people overwhelmingly say yes. They say Bill is morally responsible for what he did. Wow. So I'm just curious, did you ask people to re- try to resolve that 
Did you did you point out that glaring inconsistency in their two answers? Did, oh yeah. So this how do they a, respond? This first study is what we call a between subjects experiment. So half of the participants get one story, and half of the other participants oh, get the other story. Right, but no right. one's getting both. But then we decided, what if we confront people with this fact? So we told people. We did this study in which we asked some people this question and some people that question. But then we said, but clearly it can't be that no one is more responsible for anything in universe A, and Bill is more responsible for what he did. So which do you think? Is it that people can be more responsible or that they can't? And the answer is 50-50. Oh, it's so say. frustrating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. So there's a similar set of, of um, studies uh, that have been done mostly by people like uh, Jonathan Haidt and, and Joshua Green who are both cognitive scientists, and they're interested in the, in, um, the, the sort of the ever-expanding universe of trolley dilemmas um, that our, our listeners probably have already uh, heard us mention a couple of times. So these are the typical, typical situations, thought experiments in philosophy, where you have this situation where there's a runaway trolley, and you know that it's going to hit five people, and they're going to die unless you actually pull a lever and, and uh, divert the trolley to kill somebody else, one person. And the typical question, of course, there is, you know, would you do it? Most people, if the dilemma is put that way, answer yes. Which in philosophy is a reflection of a utilitarian kind of reasoning or a consequentialist kind of reasoning. You, you, essentially, you're, you're saving five lives and, and, and uh, losing one, even though the, the one you're losing is innocent, but so are the other five in theory. But then, of course, what um, kind of the psychologists have found out is that, um, and philosophers as well, actually, that if you, if you phrase the dilemma differently, and uh, the variant being that instead of pulling a lever, you actually had to push somebody in front of the trolley to stop it, then most people would say, no, I don't want to do that. Now, that kind of, it's a similar sort of, 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 um, sort of inconsistency um, um, between the two positions to the one that, that, you, that you mentioned. Now, what um, neuroimaging shows there is, perhaps not surprisingly, that when somebody makes the judgment about the trolley dilemmas that leans toward utilitarianism, is using uh, largely the, the uh, uh, cortex and, and therefore the sort of the cognitive areas of the brain, while uh, when, the, when the problem is posed in more emotional terms, you know, the pushing the, the person down in front of the trolley, then it's the emotional response system that, they, that takes over. And that's, uh, so it's an emotional versus a cognitive response. Now, the interesting thing is, again, that when people are confronted with this sort of logical inconsistency, they start to confabulate. They start to sort of, they're, they're, they're dumbfounded. They're, they're, they don't know what to say about it. Now, um, the point I wanted to, to, to arrive at and, and want to have your opinion on, about is this. Uh, it seems to me from reading both Haidt and, and Green's um, research, but particularly Haidt, that, that his position is that uh, this is a way in which neurobiology shows that there is no such thing as moral realism. In other words, that, that uh, all of these talk about um, ethical judgments and using reason to arrive at ethical judgments and all that sort of stuff. It's, all, it's, a, it's a nice veneer on the basic fact that we really have inconsistent systems that emotions take over at some point or another, and then therefore we simply make up these stories to, to explain to ourselves why we uh, make judgment one way or the other. Do you think that that kind of research does in fact have um, that sort of consequence for positions like moral realism in, uh, in ethics, or do they have nothing to do with it? With it? Well, no, I don't think that just showing that people's emotions are guiding their moral judgments can thereby show that there is no true thing out there that people are somehow tracking by using these emotions. But one way in which experimental philosophy has been sort of trying to get at this issue of moral realism, that is to say the question as to whether moral judgments can actually be true or are getting at something real out there in the world, is by looking at whether ordinary people themselves are moral realists or whether they are relativists. So a sort of traditional thing that philosophers always said about this problem is that 
the ordinary view, the sort of folk view of morality, is that there are moral truths, and if anyone says the opposite of what you think about morality, they must be saying something wrong. But as experimental philosophers begin looking into this problem, what they keep finding is something very different from that, that it's not the case that everyone is adopting moral realism or believing in moral objectivity. A lot of times the studies seem to be showing that a lot of ordinary folks are moral relativists. And it's just that it takes a little bit of trickery to see this sort of relativism coming up. Would they themselves describe themselves that way? You know, that's an interesting question. If we just ask people, are you a moral relativist? What people would say. I mean, you'd have to define it for them, I assume. But I mean, if you ask them, do you think that some things are just fundamentally right or fundamentally wrong or give them some examples? Just anecdotally, I feel like most people would say that there are moral truths. So, you know, the way that we do it is, again, by assigning people to different conditions. So in one condition, people will be told, um, suppose that Massimo kills one of his um, friends. And now, suppose Julia says that what Massimo did is really bad. But suppose I say it's completely fine. Then does one of us, Julia or I, have to be wrong? Or could we just both be right? Then in a second condition... We say, suppose Massimo kills one of his friends, and Julia says what he did was really bad. But now, there's someone off in the Amazonian rainforest. <laughs> this person in the Amazonian rainforest lives in this traditional culture that has very different ways from our own. They really value this kind of traditions embodied in this culture. They have this sort of warrior ethos that's really different from that that we see in Greenwich Village these days. And now, this fellow from the Amazonian rainforest says, what Massimo did is totally fine. Now, Given that Julia and he have these really different opinions, does one of them have to be wrong, or could they both be right? And then finally, in the third condition, Massimo kills someone, Julia says that it's totally bad what he did, but then there are these extraterrestrial creatures called the Pentars. (laughs) The Pentars have a completely different culture from ours. They don't care about friendship or love or companionship. All they care about is maximizing the total number of equilateral pentagons throughout the universe. So <laughs> I don't know why you philosophers would ever leave your armchairs and you sit around <laughs> thinking up stuff like this all day. I'm sorry, go on. All right, so these pentagons, <laughs> according to their culture, the most important thing is creating equilateral pentagons. If one of them ever gets too old to kind of carry out this task, then they just kill him and turn him into a pentagon himself. Right. And no, they think what Massimo did is totally fine. So, because I created a pentagon, of course. <laughs> <laughs> killing my friend. Yeah, well, if you didn't, then it's terrible. <laughs> <I mean. laughs> right. So then the question then is, if um, Julia and he have these opposite opinions, then does one of them have to be wrong, or could they both be right? What you see is this gradually increasing tendency to say they could both be right. right. So if Julia and I have opposite opinions, people say one of us has to be wrong. If Julia and the person from the Amazonian rainforest have opposite opinions, people are split about halfway. They're right at the midpoint. If Julia and the Pentar have opposite opinions, people just say they could both be right. So maybe ordinary folks don't really think there's kind of a moral objectivity that applies across all people. They just think there's some, something that applies, say, within our own culture. So that, that explains two additional things. My affinity for warrior eaters and my interest for <laughs> pentagons. So now, now I know. <laughs> that, that, that's very interesting. So, so essentially what you're saying is that, mm-hmm. therefore, the degree of perceived relativism uh, at least in the, in the kinds of subjects that you guys used, uh, is itself culturally dependent. Mm-hmm. If the culture is different enough, then then it becomes more and more, uh, it probably becomes more and more acceptable as a, as a position. Right, so it seems like whether you believe that there is morality is objective, what these, some of these studies seem to indicate is it depends on what other possibilities you're considering. If I'm just considering the difference between me and Julia, then no. But if I'm really considering these other possibilities that are really, really different, if I can open up my mind to really different ways of life, then I'll just start to see it as relative. 
So some studies have tried to figure out in other ways what happens if we look at other possibilities. So for example, suppose you give people math problems where the only way to solve the math problem is to consider a whole range of different possibilities. The people who get those math problems right are more likely to give relativist answers, and the people who get those math problems wrong are more likely to give the kind of objectivist answer. Oh, that's interesting. Um, that actually reminds me of uh, another um, interesting finding, again, back to the trolley problems kind of experiments, where it turns out that uh, people that are better at cognitive tasks um, also tend to be more utilitarian, uh, and people that are less good at cognitive tasks tend to be more sort of a deontologist or you know more more ba- their their reactions are more based on on emotional on emotional mm-hmm. response. Then, so that in fact you can um, uh, you can decrease the de- the degree of utilitarian tendency in somebody if you ask him to consider the moral dilemma at the same time that you're uh, involving him in a cognitive task. Mm-hmm. task. In other words, you're distracting the person, and so there's that that same part. Of, since the same part of the brain apparently that does math also does uh, utilitarian type of uh, ethical reasoning, then therefore there's a trade-off essentially. So you become less good at it, and, and you revert toward an emotional an emotional kind of response. So that's interesting. So that means that depending on how you put the questions, depending on the on what else the person is doing and all that, that the moral judgment can change significantly. Yes, so a really nice way of getting at this kind of uh, process that you're talking about in the domain of free will is just by changing the font in which the question is asked. So you say, consider this deterministic universe. Now, can anyone in that universe be morally responsible for what they do? If you write it out in a really easy to read font, like say, Garamond or something, Mm -hmm. people go through really simply and then they just give their sort of immediate uh, intuitive response, and they say, then the person is morally responsible. But suppose you write it in a more difficult-to-read font, like some complicated Gothic font that triggers this kind of difficult, like, concerted, careful thinking. Then people say that if you're in a moral, in a completely deterministic universe, you're not morally responsible. Oh, my God. So it seems like anything we can do that sort of triggers this more careful kind of thought moves people to a different kind of response on these moral questions. But, Josh, I'm still a little bit confused about mm-hmm. the approach that you're taking here because it, I mean, you're, you're, it seems a little bit like moral philosophy as a poll. Like, you, I mean, you, so you're getting results about um, whether people think that there are moral truths, but philosophy in theory should be trying to tell us whether there are, in fact, moral truths, not just, you know, what percentage of the population thinks there are, right? Right. So, one of the reasons that we're interested in this is just because we're interested in questions about human nature. We just want to understand human beings and how they think. But there's also this other aspect that you're getting at, the the idea that maybe by understanding how people think, we can get more insight into what really is the right answer to these Mm, questions. Yeah, tell me about that. So then the idea there would be, if we get a better understanding of these different psychological processes, and we know which psychological process leads to which kind of answer, then we can engage in a further kind of investigation about which of these processes we should really put our faith in. So which of these processes should we really trust in these kind of cases? So it's sort of similar, if I, if I read you correctly. It's in some sense similar to, say, um, a, a, somebody who is a physiologist who is interested in how vision works or how hearing works or something like that. And say, well, okay, so human beings, as a part of being a, uh, having, uh, being a human being, um, by nature we have you know, five senses which work in a certain way. Now, if I were to decide um, uh, what is the best way to navigate a particular environment, should I rely more under certain conditions on vision or on, on uh, olfactory responses or on uh, hearing mm-hmm. or whatever? Right? And it turns out that, well, given the kind of animal that we are, uh, if there is enough light around, you probably should be, in fact, relying on vision 
decision, but in fact, but if but if the environment is different, you probably should be relying on something else. And then there are some things you really shouldn't rely much on. So for instance, olfact, because it's it's very well known that compared to a lot of other animals, human beings are awful in terms of being able to to. Uh, uh, sense their, their olfactory environment. Is that the sort of thing that I'm, am I getting part of what you're saying there? Yeah, exactly. So in the kind of case that you're describing, we the question we're trying to get an answer to isn't a question about our minds or our senses. It's a question about the external environment. But by studying our minds, studying our sensory capacities, we can get a better understanding of how the external world actually looks. Another, I, I guess, um, now that I'm thinking of it, uh, another analogy might be research um, in the cognitive scientists, sciences also on the concept of intuition. So, you know, you hear this thing uh, said by many people, you know, I'm a very intuitive person, or, or that, that woman is a very intuitive uh, uh, individual and so on and so forth. It turns out that you can do research on intuition and on reliability of intuition, and there's no such thing as an intuitive person, because intuition is domain-specific, right? So if you are, um, if you spend, you know, countless hours playing chess, then your intuitions about chess are very good, but your intuitions about something else might be completely normal or, you know, perfectly average. But the idea being that, again, this is something that has been mysterious for a long time, you know, it's this intuition thing which that, that to some extent over the uh, uh, human history has even taken sort of mystical uh, aspects. And it turns out, well, this is simply sub, subconscious parallel processing by the brain, and it turns out that there are rules by, the, by um, which it operates, and there are domains in which it is more reliable and domains in which it's not reliable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a similar situation. I just one last question about this, uh, the relevance to philosophy. You, so you, you said that the these kinds of experiments can can point to which intuitions are actually reliable and which were just mis- misleading us. What actually is the answer for, for an experiment like, like the one you were describing? When we, we have these different processes we rely on in different contexts, what does that tell us about the right answer philosophically? You know, it's a very difficult question to answer, but there's been some really interesting research on it just in the past few years. So consider that case I gave you. I said, imagine a completely deterministic universe. Mm-hmm. Can you actually be morally responsible in it? There are two different processes, a sort of abstract theoretical reflection and a kind of immediate emotional response, and they lead to different answers. So some people argue there's specific reason to think that the one we should trust is our emotional response, not our capacity for abstract uh, theoretical reflection. Hmm. The way they argue for this is this way. They ask people other questions about these scenarios other than the question about whether someone can be morally responsible. So, for example, they might ask... Consider these two, this scenario. In this deterministic world, is the thing that the person does um, affected by that person's beliefs and intentions and uh, decisions? Mm-hmm. Or is it sort of independent of those? So philosophers think maybe that if something is completely deterministic, it can still depend on your beliefs or still depend on your decisions. But it turns out that in the case where people are relying on this sort of abstract reflection, they tend to say, no, it doesn't depend on your on your beliefs and decisions. In the case where they're relying on this sort of concrete emotional response, they tend to say yes. So if we start out with these two things, this empirical finding that people give this certain answer when they're using this certain psychological process, and this sort of philosophical conclusion that one of these answers is the right one, we can use that to figure out which kind of psychological process is the trustworthy one, the one we should be putting our faith in. Interesting. So this relates a little bit to a question that several of our readers on the Rationally Speaking blog had for you, and I'm sure you, you've gotten this before. Uh, the question was just about the the name or the categorization of your field as being a part of philosophy. And so, I mean, my, my reaction um, to when I first heard about experimental philosophy was that 
it just seemed oddly named. Like it seemed like psychology. It seemed like it was studying people's reactions to and thoughts about and perceptions of um, philosophical questions. And if I could be a bit cheeky for a minute, uh, I would compare it to, um, you know, the the human uh, mind is famous for making certain errors when it tries to think about various logical questions. And there are researchers who study that and those errors. Um, but we don't call that experimental logic. We call that psychology, right? So is that not analogous? Analogous. So I wouldn't think of experimental philosophy as an attempt to say that this stuff really falls within this certain kind of clear domain of philosophy. Rather, it seems like an attempt to just get people to think less about that whole distinction. This idea that it's really important to divide everything into these different disciplines, to call certain things philosophy, certain things psychology, certain things anthropology, and so mm. forth. Rather, it's sort of this attempt to go back to a kind of more maybe 19th century vision, according to which there are just questions, and we should just go after those questions in any way that we can. Mm-hmm. So maybe a really nice analogy is with the movement of behavioral economics. So these were people in economics and in psychology who just wanted to pay less attention to the idea that economics and psychology are supposed to be these distinct disciplines. And they formed a kind of field in which they collaborated to just go after these questions that were at the intersection of psychology and economics. Similarly, experimental philosophy is sort of a field or a movement composed of people in various different disciplines who are just not very interested in thinking that much about the distinction between these disciplines. It's, it's actually the, the inter- interesting that you mentioned the 19th century, going back to the 19th century, um, there was a term that was used until fairly recently, actually, the, the middle part of the 20th century, to indicate something along the lines of what you're talking about. And, and it's, uh, it comes from a Latin word, not surprisingly. Uh, it, and it's, the, the word is sentia, uh, spelled very similar to science. It's uh, S-C-E-N-T-I-A. And the meaning of sentia um, is, in fact, knowledge in the, sense, in the broad sense of rational knowledge. So the idea, there wasn't even a journal actually published in Europe until several years ago um, uh, called Sentia, and the idea was to put together philosophers, uh, logicians, mathematicians, and scientists to address whatever question it is that, uh, that crossed those boundary, boundary lines. So there actually is a concept, and you're right, it does go back to the uh, 19th century pretty much. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but it's, it's, it has fallen in disuse, and probably the reason it's fallen in disuse is, is, is precisely because of something you um, mentioned briefly earlier, which is this... Uh, perhaps necessity, certainly tendency of modern academ- academia to specialize, right? I mean, these days, you can't be a professional philosopher, it seems, unless you spend, a, you know, your entire lifetime analyzing a, a, a small part of a, of a small book by a smaller philosopher <laughs> published 500 years ago. And by analogy, similarly, in science, you know, most scientific careers are actually built on very, very specific problems that are ve- really of interest uh, directly to only a very small number of people. Um, and but the reason for that, of course, is because that way you can make an original contribution, right? And and uh, therefore you can publish papers. And publishing papers, of course, is what gets you tenure. And what gets you tenure is the holy grail of uh, of academic life. So you think that in some sense, um, the problem that this kind of approach, like experimental philosophy or or, or similar ones, might or or uh, behavioral economics, for instance, might encounter is simply an institutional one. That is it's going to be difficult to, con- to convince not only your colleagues in your department, but more importantly, your dean or your provost or the president of your university that this is, in fact, a more reasonable, more interesting way to go about it. You know, so far, things are moving in the right direction. So my position, for example, that I was hired into isn't just, say, in the Department of Philosophy. It's in an interdisciplinary program in cognitive science, where 
Cognitive science is this field that includes philosophy, psychology, linguistics, computer science, anthropology. And the students who major in cognitive science have to take courses in all of these, in these various different disciplines in order to graduate. Maybe if we're lucky, things will move increasingly in that direction, where instead of people being divided up in this careful way among different disciplines, everyone can kind of work together to go after a shared set of problems. At least the kinds of questions that I've been addressing so far, the literature on those questions hasn't at all been confined to one particular discipline or to another, but the various people who have written written on them and have been in conversation with each other have been from all sorts of different disciplines. So Joshua, you mentioned uh, a little earlier this idea of human nature and and how um, uh, philosophers are interested in human nature, or at least should be interested in human nature, because after all, philosophy deals with with what it means to be a, a human being. Now, uh, is it my impression, or recently, especially in certain areas, in, in certain quarters in academia, there is actually a fundamental skepticism about even the existence of such a thing as, as human nature, which, which, honestly, as a former biologist, I'm kind of baffled by. Uh, my, my, my typical response when somebody says, I don't believe in human nature, I said, really? So when was the last time you went out with a chimpanzee for, uh, for a date? <laughs> but um, nonetheless, what, what's your take on human nature in general? I mean, what, what is it? Wait, maybe as the professor, former professor of biology, maybe you should say something about that topic. So let's hear from you. What do you think about that? Well, so, so of course, I, I know I'm not suggesting there's such a thing as human nature as you know, some kind of essence that it's, it's only passed by human being to, a, to another human being or that it's some, some kind of uh, mystical, certainly not a mystical essence of any sort. But on the other hand, biological species are um, uh, significantly different from each other because of the environment in which they live and because of the genetic makeup that uh, that they have. Right now, of course, these are matters of similarities. Clearly, our genetic makeup it's much more similar to that of a chimpanzee than it is to that of you know a whale or something. And the same goes for our environment. But it seems to me that to claim that um, any spe- any species in general, but particularly human beings do not have some kind of uh, fundamental way of being that it's different from other species, even closer to other species, um, flies in, 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 to the, in, 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 face, in the face of the facts because our cultural environment is radically different from uh, that of any other species on, on the planet. Surely that is in part the result, at least, of the fact that we also have a different genetic makeup. For one thing, that our genetic makeup make it, makes it possible for us to have large, complex brains and to spend an inordinate amount of our energy feeding those brains. I mean, about 30% of human metabolism goes into feeding the brain. Uh, that's, a, that's a huge um, uh, figure that it's certainly not the case for all of the other uh, close relatives to, to our species. So on, based on that kind of considerations, I would say, yes, there, there is such a thing as human nature. Now, the fact that there is variation within human beings and between cultures or different times, that's obviously also the case. But it doesn't seem to me that variation negates the, uh, the existence of, more, of something fundamental on top of which this variation is, is exercised. So as a philosopher, and in particular as an experimental philosopher who just said that he's interested in human nature, what, what's your take on that? Well, the specific kind of phenomena that I've been investigating have this quality of being extremely robust across these various different kinds of variations. So some of the experiments that I've been working on or some of the phenomena that we've been trying to uncover have this quality that they're very surprising. They don't at all seem to be sort of obvious or intuitive. We find them among American adults, but we also find them among four-year-old children, among people from India taking the questionnaire in Hindi, among people who have massive damage to one or another brain region, among people who have Asperger's syndrome. It seems like these phenomena aren't just uh, local to some particular kind of cultural context, but are reflecting something deep about just what kind of species we are, what kind of human of creature we are. 
So it seems as though some of the discoveries that are coming out of experimental philosophy don't have this quality of being just discoveries about how people are, you know, right now in a certain kind of cultural context, but about how human beings fundamentally understand their world. Right. So that's that's where the difference lies, right? I mean, the, the, both in evolutionary biology, in uh, especially when, when we're talking about humans, and um, uh, more generally, in, you know, anthropological studies, it's always the question is always how to distinguish between local variation, you know, cultural variation, and something more fundamental. And it, again, as I said a minute ago, it seems to me uh, bizarre that we too often fall uh, into these these two one of these two camps. On the one hand, people who absolutely say that, 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 that there is a fundamental human nature and that cultural variation is irrelevant or, or inconsequential. That seems to be not acceptable. I mean, there's a lot of cultural variation out there, and it's very important. It does shape a lot of, of aspects of what it means to be a human. And then at the opposite extreme, you have people who say, well, it's all about cultural variation and biology doesn't matter. And these discussions tend to go on for a long time in a fairly sterile fashion. I mean, as it turns out, not only I was a biologist, but my, my field of research was gene-environment interactions, which is exactly what philosophers call nature-nurture questions. And, of course, I did not work on human beings. I worked on plants because they have the advantage you can clone them and you can grow them under controlled conditions, right? You can cross them in whatever, uh, whatever way you want. You can't do that with human beings, which means, of course, that the question of the specific um, uh, contributions of genetics and environment in humans is always going to be fairly much open to, 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 to discussion. It's not going to be easy to settle experimentally. But the fact that it is, has been settled experimentally in pretty much every other species that we know of uh, seems to me a pretty good suggestion that, yeah, we're not that different in that respect. Mm-hmm. That, that had, there is a combination between the two. I'd just like to ask one more question, Joshua, about the effect of experimental philosophy. Because it, it seems like a big part of your driving force, your raison d'etre, is challenging the traditional way that philosophy has been done. And so I'm curious what kind of reaction you have gotten from the establishment, so to speak, whether it's seen as, oh, here's this this useful addition to what we've been doing, or whether it's actually been seen as a, a substitute for the traditional methods of philosophy. What's been your experience? Well, it's been very polarizing so far in the world of philosophy more generally, with some people being really excited about it and thinking this is something that could be really valuable and make an important contribution along with other methods to philosophical research, and other people thinking this is never going to help anything, this is all a complete waste of time. But one thing I really value about the discipline of philosophy is that although some people disagree and think that this is a mistake, they don't disagree in a kind of reflexive automatic way, but always in a sort of more thoughtful, reflective way. So that if you read the various papers arguing that all of the things I've done are useless, these papers are written in a really, I think, very different way from the way that would be characteristic of, say, uh, political debate. They carefully explain exactly what it is that I've argued for and then lay out systematic arguments that it will in no way help anything. Isn't that worse for you, though? (laughs) (laughs) Like a much more meticulous uh, dismantling. I mean, but, you know, I feel like there's something really wonderful about the existence of a discipline like that, where everything is up to for questioning. And uh, even if someone wants to challenge the whole way in which you've been proceeding, people will consider it, maybe decide that it's wrong. But still take it up, take the idea on board as something worth arguing about? That well, is very big-hearted of you. Almost too good uh-huh. to be true. I have a hard time believing that. <laughs> no, but I, but I mean, the, 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 the experience actually you're talking about is similar to the one that I've had uh, moving from the, from the sciences to, the, to, to philosophy. Uh, in my bad days, 
I, I, f I think that what's actually happened is that, that now I am too much of a philosopher for my science colleagues and too much of a scientist <laughs> for my philosophy colleagues, and so nobody's happy. But in reality, in fact, um, I have to say that I've been welcome in the, in the philosophical community uh, precisely because there is this interest about everything. Uh, you know, people are generally interested in considering other points of view, even though they might disagree vehemently um, on, on what you do or what are your particular conclusions. They do it in a way that is, uh, first of all, tries to understand what you're doing, and second of all, tries to come up with the best possible argument for why you were wrong. Uh, now, you know, in philosophy 101, one of the first things you learn is that you, you always are supposed to come up with, to address the most charitable interpretation of your opponent's argument, right? You don't want to, I mean, a straw man is a fallacy. <laughs> uh, and philosophers take that very seriously. You don't, you don't oversimplify your opponent just so that you can knock him down. Uh, you take him as seriously as possible, possibly more seriously than he himself think, uh, can think possible. And then you go out and try to knock it down. So we're almost out of time, but Joshua, I just wanted to give you this opportunity to tell us if there's uh, any recent work that you're you're in the middle of now that uh, hasn't been already uh, chewed up by the by the mainstream media. I'd, I'd love to hear what you have in the works. Oh well, right now I'm working about the con on the concept of happiness. Ooh. So the kind of question is, what is people's ordinary intuition about what it means to be truly happy? And then what we find is something interesting. So we are wondering. Do people think that what it means to be truly happy is just to have a certain kind of psychological state, like to have a certain kind of emotion? Or is it that when people say that someone's truly happy, what they mean is something more, they mean something like this person really has a good life mm. or that they're living in the right way? So we ran studies about people's ordinary judgments of being happy, questions like what it means to say that someone's truly happy and what it means to say that someone's truly unhappy. And we find in these cases completely opposite results. Interesting. If you ask whether someone's truly happy, then people will be very reluctant to say that someone's truly happy if the person has a really terrible, vapid life. But if you ask whether someone's truly unhappy, then it seems to have very little to do in any way with any kind of moral judgment or value judgment you're casting on them. It just seems to be a matter of what kind of emotions you have. So someone who has really negative emotions and feeling unhappy will be judged to be uh, an unhappy person. But someone who has really positive emotions won't necessarily judge to be, be judged to be a happy person. Rather, you'll only be judged to be a happy person if people think you really have a good life. Do you think that to some extent um, uh, that difference might be due to the fact that in English the word happiness has particular kinds of connotation which are more restricted than in other languages. I mean, as, as you know, the ancient Greeks were referring to the, the concept of eudaimonia, which is occasionally translated, translated as happiness, but it doesn't really quite translate to that. You know, what Aristotle meant by eudaimonia was, in fact, more of a sort of a balanced, uh, you know, ethically positive life. He wasn't talking about just being um, happy emotionally, for, in, for instance. So could it be, and, and similar differences are also in other languages. I mean, uh, several other European languages, uh, you know, Romance languages have different words for those kinds of, for different connotations. To what extent, perhaps this, this, the, the fact that, that if you ask somebody, um, is this person happy and, and versus is this person unhappy, instead of getting the opposite, the, lo the logical opposite, you get something completely different, perhaps because they in fact are, the concepts behind those words are very different and we just would need more words essentially to explain <laughs> what it is that we're thinking. You know, that's a wonderful suggestion. So about other kinds of investigations that we've engaged in, we've always, we've done it sort of cross-linguistically, looking at what judgments people make when they answer the question in English, but also in many other languages. But since this is just starting up, we haven't tried that. But 
If we tried it in Italian, do you think we'd get the same result? Maybe we could try it in languages that aren't even closely related to English at all. Right. Yeah, that would be. I'd be very curious to see what uh, what happens in that case. I hate to cut you off because I'm so interested in the subject, but we are plumb out of time on this section. Uh, so we are going to wrap up this part of Rationally Speaking and move on to the Rationally Speaking picks. Welcome back. Every episode, Julie and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. But when we have a guest, as today's case with Joshua Noob, uh, we have the guest uh, having the the pleasure of doing the pick. So, Joshua, what did you come up with? So, I was thinking of two different books that might initially seem very, very different from each other, but I think might both be related on a deeper level and could sort of contribute as skeptic picks. So one is a book by the 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche called The Genealogy of Morals. Mm -hmm. And it's a book about why it is that people have the moral judgments they do. What are sort of the hidden psychological underpinnings of people's moral judgments? And the other is a book by my wife, the indie rock musician Alina Simon. And it's sort of a memoir of her life in the world of indie rock called You Must Go and Win, which sort of gets (laughs) at the sort of hidden, irreverent, uh, psychological underpinnings of life as an indie rock songstress. All right, that sounds like an interesting connection <laughs> between the two. Of course, Nietzsche is relevant to almost everything anyway. If we're talking about morality, so that's uh, that's a pretty good connection. Did the genealogy of morals influence your path at all? Absolutely. So how so? When I was so when I was um bef- before I went into academia, I had this picture sort of of what philosophy was. Mm-hmm. It was a picture that came out of works like these, works, you know, from the past, like Nietzsche's. And then when I went into academia, I discovered that philosophy as it was being done then was very different in certain respects mm. from this sort of older tradition. But I had a kind of retro conception of what philosophy should be about. I wanted to sort of revive this older sense of what the sort of philosophical enterprise was all about. So uh, sort of what I, what I and other people involved in this experimental philosophy movement wanted to do was to go back to that sort of more traditional conception that we see in people like Nietzsche. It's so interesting because the experimental philosophy crowd, as far as I've managed to gather, is, is quite young. Isn't that right? Oh, and, yeah. yeah oh. You're the ones advocating a return to the old days, Boy. good old days of philosophy. It's wonderful. It's a young crowd and probably the, a lot of them do listen to indie rock, don't they? Oh. <laughs> there's the connection there. You know, in fact, maybe there's a deeper connection in that my wife actually created a music video for experimental philosophy. Oh. It's called the Experimental Philosophy Anthem. The music video features a picture of an armchair gradually going up in flames. Oh, that's so beautiful. We'll have um, to link to that. We, we, will make a, we will do a link to it on the, on the website um, <laughs> of the podcast. Well, I'm afraid we're all out of time. So I just want to say thank you again, Joshua, for taking the time to visit us and, and speak to us. It's been such a pleasure. I just want to remind all of our listeners that the Rationally Speaking podcast is brought to you by the New York City Skeptics, and we encourage you to go check out our website, nycskeptics.org, where you'll find all of our lectures and upcoming events like Skepticamp. And while you're there, consider becoming a member. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit 
rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.